Hey y'all, this is May. Now to welcome you to Crimes of a Decade, a Texas true crime podcast. This season, I'll be discussing murders from the year 1930 through 1939. Today's story is of some kidnapping cases from 1939. So grab you some Whataburger and open that Dr. Pepper. Let's go back in time to Texas true crime. In 1939, World War II started when Nazi Germany attacked Poland on September 1st, and France, Australia, and the United Kingdom declared war on Germany. That same year, William Hewlett and David Packard created the Hewlett-Packard HP Technology Company. They created the company with just $538 while working together part-time in a rented garage in Palo Alto, California. The first product they created was a device called Resistance Capacitance Audio Oscillators that were used to test sound equipment. Their first client was the Walt Disney Company, who bought eight oscillators to use in the development of the film Fantasia. Another thing that happened in 1939 were three different types of kidnappings. Please join me in walking down Erie Lane. A 14-year-old boy in El Paso, Texas loved reading detective magazines and watching shows about crime. I know what you're thinking. I enjoy that too. Unfortunately, this boy, Francisco Vera, one of a family of eight poverty-stricken children, went the opposite way when he believed he could pull off an extortion kidnapping plot. He first attempted to extort a druggist named R.B. Bowden, But when that fell through, he turned his attention to E.W. Myers and his 16-year-old daughter, Georgetta Myers. She received a note about two months before. Later, her mother received a note, written in the same handwriting. Since the first note was received, Georgetta had been guarded secretly by FBI agents. She rode to and from school in a taxi and telephoned her parents before she was to leave for home each day. She was accompanied by her parents or a guard everywhere she went. So when Mr. Myers received a note that outlined instruction for delivering the money, the FBI was already in the know. The instructions were for Meyer to place $1,000 in bills in a cigar box and throw it from his car at a designated spot while traveling 60 miles an hour. It was signed, You Know Who. Myers prepared a decoy package and carried out the instructions. FBI agents hid nearby, and when young Vera darted from a doorway, picked up the box and started running. The agents surrounded him almost immediately. They trapped the boy around 11 p.m. on March 18, 1939, near his home. 
He was arrested and held in the county jail under $2,500 bond on a charge of intent to extort $1,000 on a threat through the mails to kidnap a girl. Vera admitted to writing the notes and that he got the idea from reading detective story magazines and newspapers and that he worked alone. When being interviewed, Bear held a newspaper clipping with a picture of Georgetta Myers on it, with a story about her being second in an Austin high school beauty contest. Bear was quoted as saying, She is pretty. I thought I could scare her parents out of paying me the money, which I wanted. I am sorry now. I tried the plan. From now on, I'm going to be on the side of the law. When I get out of jail... I want to be a detective so that I can help enforce the laws. I never even had a chance to look into the box to see what it contained. They caught me too quickly. The United States Attorney's Office prepared to file information in federal court against him for allegedly using the mails in an attempt to extort $1,000. But it ended up being decided that Barra would attend a state training school in Washington, D.C. On September 29, 1939, three state convicts, a murderer and two robbers, escaped from Huntsville Prison by tunneling under the toilet of the grandstand of the prison's rodeo grounds. After gaining their freedom, the prisoners walked three blocks where they stumbled upon four high school students. Mary Ethelyn Ball, 16. Cleveland Bishop, 16. Jack Felder, 15. And Willene Smith, 16. Who had just returned from a football game and were seated in an automobile in front of Smith's home. Seeing their opportunity, the convicts hurriedly ordered the youth to let one of them behind the wheel, exchanged clothes with the boy hostages, and took the four youths along for the ride. The seven stopped at Cold Springs, 35 miles southeast of Huntsville. The fugitives got out, stole some gasoline, and broke into a clothing store. After changing their clothes, they returned the clothes they borrowed from the two teenage boys. The convicts let the four hostages go in Beaumont, unharmed, at 3.45 a.m. During this time, the youth's parents spent most of the night anxious and searching frantically until 15-year-old Jack called his mom and told her the convicts freed them after taking both boys' shirts and about $1.50. After being released, Mary Ethelyn Ball was quoted as saying, The men were very nice to us all the time and used no profane language. We were scared at first, but when the men were so nice to us, we were relieved. We had a lot of fun but we wouldn't want to go through it again. The three convicts were Lloyd Rayburn, 31, serving a life sentence for murder and robbery with firearms. Clifton Davidson, 32, serving 35 years for robbery. And S.J. Whatley, Jr., 24, serving six years for burglary. I'm not sure when Whatley was caught and if he finished serving out his six-year sentence. But he was arrested again in April 1951, 
after robbing a grocery store on September 19, 1951, in Dallas with his brother, Henry Woodley. However, Rayburn and Davidson were caught nine days later on October 6, after they attempted to hold up a cafe and ended up shooting and killing Sergeant Sigur Foss of the U.S. Marines. He was shot to death as he grappled with one of the gunmen. After shooting Foss, Rayburn and Davidson forced H.G. Harris, a Little Rock stereotyper, to drive them to West Memphis in his car. A few hours later, they were captured by state police and confessed they had escaped from the Texas Penitentiary at Huntsville on September 29th, and that they had been in this area for several days and were responsible for a series of automobile thefts at Stuttgart and Hazen. Four witnesses picked Rayburn out of a police lineup, naming him as the gunman. The gun used in the holdup and murder was found in the car with the convicts and several fingerprints and the print of a hand palm found at the scene of the robbery matched Rayburn. On November 14, 1939, Lloyd Rayburn was convicted of first-degree murder and was sentenced to death in the electric chair on December 15th at Tucker Penal Farm. But Governor Bailey stayed Rayburn's execution until January 19th to give his attorneys an opportunity to perfect an appeal to the Arkansas Supreme Court. His sentence was eventually committed to life in prison. Charges against Davidson for the murder were dropped. But he did plead guilty on a charge of kidnapping for the Little Rock newspaper employee. He was given a postponement of judgment and was turned over to Texas authorities for him to return to Huntsville. He had more than 26 years remaining of his 35-year robbery sentence, and the plan would be for Davidson to return to Little Rock after the completion of his Texas term. I found one more article that referenced Rayburn in a newspaper on August 1, 1942. While at Tucker Prison Farm, Lloyd Rayburn was wounded in an attempted prison escape. Woodrow Diker, a hot springs forger serving a four-year term, managed to jerk a pistol from the belt of the guard inside the cannery and placed it against his back, threatening to kill him. If the outside guards did not permit him and his associates to flee. When the outside guards refused to let them out, Riker fired, wounding the guard, Warden E. Workman, in the shoulder. A riot followed in which the outside guards killed Riker and wounded Rayburn and another prisoner, John R. Hodges. Erwin Mingle was 11 years old when he was kidnapped on December 7, 1939. The child had been taken from his home at around 7 p.m. when an armed man, who seemed very nervous, pointed a gun at his parents and instructed the father to leave $15,000 in the garage of Dr. Welch. The abductor bound the parents and then told them, Don't tell police or I kill your son as he left the house with the boy. Erwin was taken to a house on the outskirts of town, bound, gagged, and placed in an attic hideout. Just before noon, the next day, Erwin wiggled out of his bonds, slipped the gag from his mouth, and attracted the attention of neighbors who released him. 
During the time the boy was missing, police believe the work was that of a bungling amateur and were joined in their search by a dozen FBI agents who converged on Port Arthur when the kidnapping became known. Mr. Mingle, a well-to-do automobile dealer, had made arrangements with a bank to get the ransom. The kidnapper asked that it be left in small denominations of unmarked bills in Dr. Welch's garage near the Mingle home. Officers watched the garage but saw no trace of the suspect. But on December 9th, two days after the kidnapping, W.C. Welch, a chiropractor in front of the family, was arrested and charged with the kidnapping for ransom of 11-year-old Irwin Mingle. The FBI left soon after Welch was caught as there was no interstate violation and no threats had been made through the mail. The boy told police the kidnapper sounded like Dr. Welch's. Dr. Welch was a heavyset man of medium height and slightly bald. He told officers he had paid his son, Calvert Welch, a visit at 7.15 p.m. the night of the kidnapping. The chiropractor said he went for a ride, as was his custom, after leaving his son. A dark coat and a black coat found in the chiropractor's home were similar to the kidnapper's garb, said Arwen. And officers were piecing together evidence on Saturday night. They planned on making a plaster cast of tire tracks discovered in the pasture lane in the rear of the Mingle home, and it would be compared with the tires of Dr. Welch's automobile. Here is Irwin's account of the kidnapping. Sure, I was scared, but not as scared as the man was. He was shaking like a leaf. It was about 7 o'clock Thursday night, and Mama and I were tying up a Christmas package. I guess he tiptoed in the house. Papa was reading. We looked up, and he was pointing a rusty gun at us. It looked silver. He was shaking. Get on the floor or me shoot, he said. He sounded like a Mexican. He had white gauze over his right eye and a black hat pulled down over his face. I saw he was wearing brown pants and a black coat. I was scared then, but he was too. He made us lie down on our stomachs and tie our hands. He had a time with Papa's hands. Then he stuck old rags in our mouths, and he blindfolded us, used a gown of Mama's to bind Daddy. He tied Mama's and Daddy's legs and told me to come on. He sounded more scared than I felt. He didn't hurt me, just put his hand on my shoulder. We went out the back door. When we came to the gate, he carried me through. And when we went through the fence, he held the wire down so I could step over. I was thinking then. He had told Daddy to bring $15,000 and put it in a box in Dr. Welch's garage. And he said, Don't tell police or I kill your son. I was thinking how to get away, but my hands were tied. I was blindfolded, but could see over the top a little. I tried to find out more about him. So I said, I won't be able to go to school tomorrow. I go to the Queen's school. I'll be 12 Tuesday. All he said was, afraid not. He put me in the car and we sat there about five minutes. I guess he was seeing if daddy and mama got loose. Then we drove for about five minutes, about 45 or 50 miles an hour. I was trying to figure out where we were going 
but it was hard to tell. We stopped and waited about ten minutes. Then he carried me over what felt like loose dirt. He put me down and told me to step up. I did, and heard him unlock a door. He led me in and told me to lie down. He covered me up with a jacket. Mama had begged him to take it. He left then, for about twenty minutes, I guess. And when he came back, I could hear him tear strips from something that smelled like burlap. He lifted me up to the attic then, and laid me on the floor. He took three pieces of shiplap that he had covered with burlap and put them across rafters and laid me on them. He taped my mouth shut, tied my hands on one pole and my feet on another, and covered me with burlap bags, about fifteen of them. I was so thirsty. I tried to ask for water. When I did, he slapped me on the shoulder and said, "Quiet, me hit." He didn't hurt me. Then he left. I remember something else. Now, as we go out to go in the house, I wanted to make him talk more, so I could find out more about him. I told him I wanted to drive some more. Me uncle fixed that. He said. When we started to go in the house, I asked him who owned the house. He just said, "Me uncle." Several other times, he mentioned his uncle. I couldn't find out much. The way he had laid me in the attic, I was on one shoulder. It's still sore. It was hard to sleep last night. He had pulled the goggles on my aviation cap down over my eyes. They hurt, but I managed to wiggle them loose. I got hot and sweaty. I finally went to sleep. When I woke up, I was cool. I thought I heard chickens crow. I wiggled the blindfold loose, but it got over my nose and made it hard for me to breathe. I got the tape loose from my mouth and one hand loose. I shouted, "Hey!" I heard some noise and it scared me a little. Afterward, I found out it was just pigeons and crows. I went back to sleep. When I woke up again, I got my nerve back and got my hands loose. I shouted. First, I just called out "Easy" to see if he was there. Then I shouted loud. I said, "Hey, I'm thirsty." Then a woman answered. At first, I was afraid she was the man's wife. At first, she didn't believe me. Then they came in and got me. Then Daddy came. I was scared some. I was worried some too. I worried mostly about Mama and Daddy. I knew they would be worried about me. That's all. W. C. Welch was convicted and sentenced to fifteen years in prison. Here are some of the top kidnapping statistics. More than 460,000 children go missing every year. In most cases, the disappearances are not attributed to kidnapping, and a person is found alive and well. However, tens of thousands never come back, and the authorities are often unable to determine what happened. Twelve-plus years old children are the kidnapping victims in around eighty percent of all cases that include minors. 
girls from 12 to 17 years of age are the most typical victims of abduction. Human trafficking is a $150 billion worth industry. 99% of sex trafficking victims are females. 2018 saw 5,070 adults and 2,378 children human trafficking cases. Every year, 600,000 people go missing in the U.S. 43% of global kidnappings for ransom occurred in Asia. There are three classifications associated with child abductions when it comes to the perpetrator's identity. Family, acquaintance, and stranger kidnappings. Parents carry out family abduction. Acquaintance abduction is done mainly by juvenile offenders, and victims are typically women and teenagers. And stranger kidnappings are carried out outdoors and is linked with sexual assaults or robberies. Another fact about kidnappings is the Amber Alert. According to the U.S. Department of Justice, as of September 2019, 967 children have been rescued thanks to Amber Alert. The Amber Alert remains one of the most helpful tools in locating lost or abducted children, and it was started in Texas. Amber stands for America's Missing, Broadcast Emergency Response, but was also named after Amber Hagerman. On January 13, 1996, in Arlington, Texas, nine-year-old Amber Hagerman and her five-year-old brother Ricky left their grandmother's house on their bikes at 3.10 p.m. The two kids rode to an empty Winn-Dixie two-tenths of a mile from their home to ride on a cool ramp in the parking lot. Ricky, remembering they were told to only ride around the block, soon headed back toward home. Minutes later, a man named Jimmy Cavill witnessed something terrible. While in his backyard, through a chain-link fence, he looked across the street to the rear of the strip mall where the Winn-Dixie was located. He witnessed Amber riding up and down and that she was by herself. Then he saw this black pickup. The man pulled up, jumped out, and grabbed her. Amber screamed and tried to kick the man as he forced her into the truck. Cavill figured the police should be called. He hurried into the house to call 911. As he saw the kidnapper pull out of the parking lot and head west on Abram Street. He described Amber's abductor as a white or Hispanic man in his 20s or 30s, under 6 feet tall, with a medium build, and brown or black hair. His truck, a single cab pickup, was in good condition and was solid black, with no chrome or striping. When 5-year-old Ricky returned to his grandmother's home, alone a few minutes after he and his sister had left, Family members immediately went looking for Amber. But all they found was Amber's pink and white bicycle and police officers already at the scene. In the days after Amber's abduction, more than 50 police officers and FBI agents worked to bring Amber home to her family 
Their hopes were dashed five days later when the girl's naked body was spotted near a drainage culvert in a creek bed behind an apartment complex, approximately four miles from the abandoned parking lot. Her throat was cut. Authorities believed a thunderstorm swept Amber's body into the creek because apartment maintenance workers in the area didn't see anything out of the ordinary before the storm, and that the rise in the creek waters may have carried her body to where it was found. It is believed that Amber was kept alive for at least two days after she was abducted. Her killer has never been found. Diane Simone, a mom herself, watched the news as Amber's parents lived through their worst nightmare. Shortly after Amber Hagerman's funeral, Diane called into a local radio station. She had an idea. She figured if the local media sent out weather alerts, they could do the same for abducted children. She stated, When the National Weather Service issues an alert for severe weather, it interrupts television and radio broadcasts while making a loud noise. Why not do the same for kidnapped children? Broadcasters in the Dallas-Fort Worth area partnered with law enforcement to develop the system. Her idea was established as the America's Missing Broadcast Emergency Response Alert System, better known as the Amber Alert in Amber Hagerman's honor. When a child is abducted, law enforcement sends an alert to radio and television stations, lottery systems, the Department of Transportation, and the NCMEC. The first child rescued as a result of an Amber Alert was in 1998. An eight-week-old Arlington infant named Ray Lee Bradbury. She was taken from her family's apartment by her babysitter. Arlington's Amber Alert was still new at this time, but when someone spotted the babysitter's truck shortly after an alert was issued, police found the baby safely asleep in a car seat. Anyone with information on the abduction and murder of Amber Hagerman is asked to call Arlington Police Detectives at 817-575-8823. Want to say a huge thank you to newspapers.com, allthatsinteresting.com, safeatlast.co, and all the other great resources that helped me get all the information for this episode. I'll put a link to their work in the show notes. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Crimes of a Decade, a Texas true crime podcast. Next episode, I'll be detailing the life and crimes of Bonnie and Clyde for the season three finale. Don't forget to subscribe to my Patreon so that you can get a new episode every week. Also, I would really love it if you hit the subscribe button and to rate and review my podcast on iTunes, as it really does help out. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to email me at crimesofadecade at gmail.com.